Hello and welcome to the ALSI podcast, where we have the stories of lung cancer patients and their caregivers, as well as the work of doctors and researchers in the field. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Bruce Johnson with us. Dr. Johnson received his MD from the University of Minnesota in 1979 and his postgraduate training at the University of Chicago and the National Cancer Institute. After serving at NCI, where he most recently headed the lung cancer biology section, he joined Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in 1999. He currently co-leads the Dana-Farber and Harvard Cancer Center Lung Cancer Program. Dr. Johnson was previously the Chief Clinical Research Officer at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and is now a senior consultant on the executive leadership team. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to be here with us. We're so excited to have you. It's uh, great to be able to join you today. Thank you. To introduce myself, my name is Priyanka Senthal, and I'm with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, or ALSI for short. I would like to take a few minutes to share about our organization and introduce lung cancer and lung cancer screening. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We're a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 73%. We believe educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 250 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. Over the last year, we've worked with over 345 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including multiple mayors, Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who's a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Primavera, to issue public service announcements emphasizing the importance of lung cancer screening. And in addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started this podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors, doctors, and researchers to share their experience and work with lung cancer. ALSI worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer through screening. In December 2022, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan resolution for the third year in a row, designating November 2022 as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month and expressing support for the early detection and treatment of lung cancer. This Senate resolution, Senate Resolution 863, expands on the previous resolutions by emphasizing the need for efforts to increase awareness of screening among veterans, women, and racial minorities. ALSI also actively worked with Representative Brandon Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine Zalker Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. Lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computer tomography scan. This scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than 10 minutes to complete. 
the United States Preventive Service Task Force, also known as the USPSPF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. And right now they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20 pack year smoking history or more, and who currently smoke or have quit within the past 15 years, get annual low dose CT scans. One pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, and therefore 20 pack years can be met in a multitude of ways, including smoking one pack a day for 20 years, or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. If you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria just discussed, please encourage them to take our lung cancer screening eligibility survey so they can learn whether they are eligible and have the opportunity to connect with their team at ELSI to guide them through the screening process. Finally, we wanna highlight there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to lungs. We believe that it is really important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you everyone for listening to that quick presentation and introduction to lung cancer screening. Without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We're so excited to have you again, Dr. Johnson. So thank you so much for your time. Our first question for you, Dr. Johnson, is could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe what a day in your life looks like? Well, one of the things that when I was doing my training, when I went to the National Cancer Institute, at the time, lung cancer had the greatest need. As has been stated, it was the leading cause of cancer deaths. And when I decided to go into it, the rates of both the incidents, meaning the number of people who get it, as well as the number of people who are dying from it was increasing every year. And it was dominating the national cancer st statistics of seeing that cancers in general were going up when you took a look at it. And one of the things that prompted was, where is the area of greatest need, uh, number one? And then number two is that at the time, we didn't have any effective therapies for uh, non-small cell lung cancer, which makes up 85% uh, of lung cancers. We were treating people with small cell lung cancer. So we identified it as a great need. And the second thing is, is that there was a laboratory at the National Cancer Institute run by several esteemed colleagues, uh, Drs. Minna Bunn and Idy, where one could get access to being able to do innovative clinical trials. And at the time, because the treatments weren't that effective, you could do a number and lastly is that there was an ongoing program to attempt to study the lung cancers uh, from our patients and know what the clinical course was and, and what their background was to be able to make some insights into lung cancer. Wonderful. And, and so you currently lead the Dana-Farber and Harvard Cancer Center Lung Cancer Program. Could you talk a little bit about your current work with this program and, and maybe some projects that you're helping to lead? Well, one of the things that is a great joy is being able to work with my colleagues, not only at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, but also we, it's seven institutions that banded together at Harvard Medical School. And one of the things that we try to do is to work as collaboratively as possible and share clinical trials and ongoing scientific projects. So a couple of examples of things that are currently ongoing is that we have three different large grants that go across all of our institutions. And I'll give some examples from two. One is a lung cancer specialized program of research excellence. And this involves investigators from all the seven Harvard institutions, Massachusetts General Hospital, Dana-Farber, 
even children's hospital, it, it, it's not common, but we have researchers where the scientific o- overlap, the Harvard School of Public Health, the Harvard Medical School, and Massachusetts General Hospital. And by marshalling all those resources, one can do a much bigger job both studying it as well as ultimately treating it. And so one of the examples is that the second most common genomic change for which there, actually it's the third, the third most common genomic change for which there's targeted therapies available is something called the anaplastic lymphoma kinase gene, ALK. And one of the agents that we have are pretty effective. They work for years in people, even with advanced disease, but commonly in, in most people, it'll eventually come back. And one of the things by working together with people at the children's hospital, that that particular gene is activated in some childhood cancer. So they're trying to make a vaccine to control the disease for a longer period of time than just giving oral medication. So that's uh, one of the examples. The second example I have is that we work with our colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital. And one of the things that I was ecstatic to observe is that with the onset of immunotherapy, which began widely used in lung cancer in about five years ago, we began seeing people who had advanced disease have complete responses where we saw a resolution of all the cancers. And I have a few patients in my clinic who are out now more than five years beyond when they started treatment with their advanced cancer and they don't have any evidence of disease. So this was something that's fundamentally different. But that doesn't happen in the majority of people. The majority of people, either it doesn't work or it, it works for a while and it comes back. And so we have an ongoing project of biopsying people and studying not only the tumor cells, but also the immune cells and other cells within the tumor to find out why some people are responding for a long period of time or even cured, while others, it doesn't work. One of your translational research interests is testing the efficacy of novel therapeutic agents against lung cancer with specific genomic changes. So could you talk more about this? Well, one of the things that I was able to do working with my colleagues is we ended up finding out the relationship between the genomic changes in the epidermal growth factor receptor and the ability to respond to the agents directed against it. They're referred to as the epidermal growth factor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And back in, it was almost 20 years ago when we began using agents directed against the epidermal growth factor receptor, they were making pills. And because the receptor was present on the vast majority of lung cancers, they thought, well, maybe this will work. And amongst those people, we ended up seeing these dramatic responses, but it was only in a minority of patients, only about 10% of the patients would you see these when I'm talking about a dramatic response, I'm talking about most of the cancer goes away for a year or longer, which at the time was very unusual in lung cancer. And so working with a large number of people, and we had independent studies going on at Massachusetts General Hospital and at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and we ended up putting these together. We ended up finding these genomic changes in the patients who had responded. And we subsequently learned that there, there are two different ones. There's ones where you lose part of the gene in the active part of the receptor that's genomically changed. So we found that in the patients who are responding. And then the second thing is, is that when I worked at the National Cancer Institute, we collected tumors. So we knew the clinical characteristics of the people who were going to respond. And they were people who hadn't smoked and women and in adenocarcinomas. So we had started 
growing cancers outside the body called cell lines. And we found one from a woman with adenocarcinoma who didn't smoke, which was the group where you saw this. And we found that same genetic change. And we found that it was a hundred fold more sensitive to when you test it outside the body against these inhibitors. And because of that, we found a link. And then now most lung cancer patients in the world get that test. And that was in 2004. And people are still getting that test. And the people who get it are able to be treated with these oral pills instead of chemotherapy. And it works for years instead of months. So we have a variety of listeners on our podcast from medical students to people in the medical field and also individuals outside of the medical field. So for those who may not be familiar, could you explain what a genomic change is and how it can affect the type of treatment a patient may receive for lung cancer? Yeah, so one of the things that causes cancers to grow is they have receptors. They have, it's a structure on the outside of a cell and different things bind to it and turn it on. And the part that's turned on is called a kinase. It's um, something that takes a, a molecule and changes other molecules to cause growth. It's called phosphorylation. And one of the things that happens with this genetic change, that it ends up either being a substitution of amino acid that's a building block of the proteins in the one spot that's called an L850R mutation. And then there's a second one where you lose a few building blocks of the protein called a deletion. And the way we commonly describe this, it's like you put your foot on the accelerator and don't take it off. It turns that receptor on and it turns on that kinase and it causes the cancers to grow. And that's one of the necessary but not absolutely sufficient things to happen to cause the cancer. And as we said before, because they had these medicines that would turn off that kinase, you know, you, you take an oral pill once a day and it turns off the kinase. And for the vast majority of people, the tumor shrinks. And as I said before, for some people now with the newest agent called osimertinib or tigriso, it'll work for about a year and a half to two years. Now, we think that's pretty good and it's better than it was before, but we need to continue making more dramatic progress on attempting to turn off that receptor. Wonderful. Thank you. And how can you identify these genetic changes in patients? Could you walk us through kind of what is a test that the patients undergo to identify these changes? Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, I work with the American Cancer Society and the American Society of Clinical Oncology to attempt to make sure that everybody gets these tests. So one of the things that all our professional organizations advocate for is that when a person undergoes a biopsy, you know, one of the things that happens if you're diagnosing lung cancer is that you need to find a place where the cancer is and take a biopsy of it, look under the microscope. And what one of the things we think is very important is that you get that tumor tissue and then it undergoes a test and you can test it just for those mutations. Uh, it's a simple test, but one of the things we advocate for, because you know, there's now more than 10 different genetic changes for which there's targeted therapies, is that we strongly advocate that you have a broad panel test. It's called next generation sequencing. And you know, at my own institution, we test for about 450 genes. And all you need is a few hundred cancer cells to be able to, to find those genetic changes. And as I said before, we strongly believe that the people who have these genetic changes should get these targeted therapies. And 
some of the work that I did with Dr. Mark Chris and, and an organization called the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium, we found that if you do that test and you find a genetic change and the patient gets that targeted therapy, those patients live about a year longer than the patients who don't. So we think it's critically important that everybody have a biopsy and then that it undergo comprehensive testing at a minimum to take a look at those 10 genes, but preferably a broader panel because almost every year there's yet another genomic change for which there's an approved agent. And so we think it's important that when you get the test, you get the test not only for what's approved at the current time, but things that could be approved sometime in the future. You mentioned already that your research group has identified the link between mutations of the epidermal growth factor receptor EGFR and response to EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So could you explain why these targeted agents are more effective than chemotherapy? When talking with patients, we will often discuss genetic testing, but patients and just people in general are, are not exactly sure why these targeted therapies are more effective than the traditional methods of treatment like chemotherapy, immunotherapy. So if you could talk about that, that would be wonderful. Well, just a little bit for the history of this is that, you know, in the 1990s, they began finding that if you gave chemotherapy drugs that included a drug called cisplatin or carboplatin, that people lived a few months longer than if they didn't get it. And it was also a backbone of if you got treated or it was localized to your chest when you got chest radiation therapy. And as I mentioned before, the, the drugs helped, but almost everybody, the tumors came back. When you began finding these genomic changes that you could give pills, the reason why, and, and it was one of the things we always hoped, is that you could target the gene that was specifically activated in a given individual's cancer. And, and one of the things that we learned is that they all look the same under the microscope. You know, most of these things occur in something called an adenocarcinoma, which when you look at it under the microscope, it looks like glands. It looks like your salivary gland or glands that appear in your lung. And you can't tell what the genomic change is going to be. And as an example, you know, for the ones that have, a, it's called a chromosomal translocation. The gene that is active breaks apart and ends up getting activated by something called the transcription factor. That's something that tells the lots of the gene to be made. And they've worked now for a long time to find things that are very potent, meaning relatively low concentrations of the drug can turn that gene off. The good news is that it can be put in pills that work. And as I mentioned before, in this ALK one, you know, the current available agents work for three years or longer on average. And so that's very different. In the chemotherapy drugs, they work for about three or four months. And so this is dramatically different. You know, it's a prolongation of, of about tenfold for these folks. So if you find this, the other important thing is the side effects by and large are dramatically less than if you got chemotherapy. Uh, you know, of our, of our patients who get both chemotherapy and targeted therapies, more than 90% said that they prefer getting the, the targeted therapies because the side effects are less and it affects people's lives. So if there's a patient who's diagnosed with lung cancer, what steps do they have to take to get genetic testing? So uh, number one is that, and we just published an article in a journal called CA Cancer Journal for Clinicians. It's an American Cancer Society, and it, and it goes through in there, and it's, it's mostly written for doctors, but hopefully people can see it and, it. and it outlines the steps on how you can expeditiously make a diagnosis, number one. And then number two is 
obtain enough tumor material for doing this genomic testing we think is critically important for people with with lung cancer. And the steps, you know, the steps needed for doing this is number one is is timeliness. You know, the one thing we don't like to do is to do one test and then wait for the results and do another test because it's typically a delay of one or two weeks. So, you know, whenever we get involved and we see somebody that's not diagnosed, we order a series of tests and try to get them all done within a week and then get a biopsy and arrange to get a biopsy. The typical length of time after you have the procedure before they have a diagnosis is about a week. And then the a comprehensive biomarker testing will take about two or three weeks. So about the shortest it can be is about a month. Now, we hope that you know this biomarker, comprehensive biomarker testing will eventually be able to be shortened to less than the two or three weeks that it currently takes, but it's timely. Now, every once in a while, you'll see somebody that's pretty ill. So for instance, a subset of cancer that we haven't talked too much about, small cell lung cancer, which makes up 15%, it grows pretty fast. And sometimes you need to treat those people who have this, you know, within a matter of days. And so there you select an empiric chemotherapy and then wait till you get the results of the testing back and then switch after that if a person is symptomatic or has serious symptoms related to their lung cancer. So you briefly touched upon the difference between non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. And we get this question often. Could you expand a little bit on the differences between the two? Well, when I first started out in the business in the 1980s and 90s, small cell lung cancer made up about 20 or 30% of the lung cancers. It's the most closely related to heavy cigarette smoking, and it's characterized by rapid growth. Now, one of the principles of oncology is that, you know, if the cells are rapidly growing, so we see this sometimes in lymphomas and leukemias, is those are the ones that tend to be relatively sensitive to chemotherapy drugs. And so it wasn't an accident. It was back in the 1950s and 60s that they figured out that conventional chemotherapy could make the small cell lung cancer shrink the majority of the time, number one. Number two is could make people live longer. So that was recognized as the first chemotherapy-sensitive lung cancer. And a lot of us were trained in how one treats the small cell lung cancers. And a few of them where it was confined to the chest could be cured by it. So we were very careful to A, make the correct diagnosis and B, to treat the people with effective doses of chemotherapy and most typically with chest radiation therapy, it was localized to the chest. And that was actually my first scientific study that I published was people who survived for longer than two years with small cell lung cancer. And indeed, some of them were cured. And, you know, for us, that was, even though it was the minority of the patients and a relatively small minority, it was very encouraging that you could indeed cure some people with, with lung cancer. And the treatments have got a bit better in small cell lung cancer, but it's not one that we've seen the kind of dramatic advances that we've seen in non-small cell lung cancer. And one of your focuses has been monitoring and tracking the genomic changes in patients in order to choose the most effective targeting agent. So could you first share the advantages and disadvantages of targeted therapy, if there are any disadvantages, and also how this initiative or project has been going so far. So have you run into any challenges with this? Well, one of the big examples in lung cancer was that, you know, we found out that 
when we initially made the observation that some of the people getting two different drugs that were available at the time, gefitinib and erlotinib made by two different companies, is that some of them were effective. And then working with my colleagues from Beth Israel, which is one of the seven institutions in the Harvard Cancer Center, was get the principle of biopsying people when the tumor's growing. And it turns out that there was a acquired genetic change. That means the change wasn't originally there in the tumor, but under the selective pressure of the targeted agent, a secondary mutation, a mutation that arose within the tumor changed an amino acid, which is one of the building blocks from something called the threonine to methionine. And that ended up making the tumor relatively resistant to the agent. So a series of scientific investigations took place to find agents that were effective, and it happens to be called a gatekeeper mutation, is that a drug was developed that was active and was first proven to be effective in this acquired resistance mutation, and then it was moved up front. And the length of time that it works in people with these EGFR mutants was doubled when in the trial and compared to the old one. And that's one of the principles of targeted therapies. When you put that selective pressure on, secondary mutations can take place. And we've subsequently learned that it, it can be a whole different series of changes. And it's currently considered standard of care that when a person is on a targeted agent, develop resistance to the first one that you biopsy because the different mechanisms can give rise to the reasons why the original agent no longer works. And how you address that can vary a good bit based on what the the term we call call it is acquired resistance to decide whether you add a second drug or whether you change to a different, uh, more effective targeted agent. And so from your experience and your expertise, in your opinion, what is the biggest challenge for the field of lung cancer in the next couple of years? I'm going to say number one is we'd like to see the number of people who are at risk for lung cancer get screened. One of the things that happen and one of the things that I work on through the American Cancer Society, as well as your organization, is to get an increased number of people to get screened. And I guess I'm a little bit proud that the state I live in, Massachusetts, has the highest screening rates in the country, but it's still below 20%. And you know, one of the things that happens with cervical cancer, other cancers that be screened, cervical cancer, prostate cancer colon cancer and breast cancer is that the screening rates, you know, vary between in the 60s to over 80%. So we'd like to see the numbers get closer to that. You know, we we are proud of your organization for attempting to get this information out. One of the things I'm pretty proud of is that one of my trainees, Dr. Michael Kelly, who's at Duke, has really worked on this to try to get the primary care physicians within the veterans the VA hospitals to make certain they're screening and that their screening rates of those at risk are, you know, somewhere between 50 and 70%. So it shows that it can be done when you educate the folks and have feedback. So we're guardedly optimistic that this will be more extensively deployed. So that's one. And then the second is, is that all the patients with advanced lung cancer get the comprehensive biomarker testing because it can definitely impact the outcomes and prolong people's lives and, and not only prolong it, but also decrease the side effects associated with the treatment. Yeah, I think you bring up such an important point about the lung cancer screening rate. 
with other common cancers like breast, colon, and cervical cancer, we've made a lot of progress and, and the screening rates are, are much higher at around 70, 73, 75%. And, and that is really amazing. But the that we haven't had as much progress with lung cancer screening. And a lot of the individuals that we've talked with have mentioned this as, as probably one of the biggest challenges for the field going forward. And so in addition to rate increasing the lung cancer screening rates, I wanted to ask about the efficacy of the lung cancer screening guidelines. So the, the current screening guidelines use categorical criteria, which again are individuals who are between the ages of 50 and 80, who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who currently smoke or have quit smoking within the past 15 years. But even with these revised lung cancer screening criteria, a lot of studies have shown really significant racial and gender disparities still existing. And so, for example, racial minorities and women diagnosed with lung cancer are less likely to be eligible for screening because they have quit smoking for more than 15 years or don't meet the pack your smoking history criteria. And so, Dr. Johnson, in response to this, a lot of individuals turn to the lung cancer risk prediction models. Do you believe lung cancer risk prediction models will help reduce these racial and gender disparities? Or what is your take on this challenge within the field? The obvious thing is that the screening criteria are going to miss some of the people who are at risk. And I want to address one issue, too, that we hope will be accurately addressed. And that is, number one, is having the information on a person's smoking history accurately documented in the medical record to identify it. So, I mean, you should have the capability within electronic medical record systems to to do a sweep and identify all those patients and to make it a measure of efficacy of your primary care physician that if you do meet these criteria, that you get screened. The second thing is, is that the pack year and the number of years very much simplifies who's at risk. The obvious thing is that it's missing a substantial proportion of people at lung cancer. And so we believe that it's going to be better to be able to do these risk modeling able to identify the appropriate folks. So for instance, you know, there's not much of anything in there on family history. And I follow a number of people that, and there's actually inherited syndrome. So we're, we are indeed screening some people who, who have inherited syndromes, number one. And then number two is that one of my colleagues that I work with has found that and people who are younger than 45 who get lung cancer, A, most of them are women, and B, and amongst that group, if you take a look at the known genetic predispositions, between 15 and 20% of the people have an underlying genomic change. So, you know, we're missing a bunch, and we think we do a much need to do a much better job. I, I do think, you know, your organization focusing in on getting the people screened who are at risk is a great first step. And the blocking and tackling part of this, of being able to A, accurately record somebody's smoking history, B, and those who meet the criteria get screened. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. It, those were wonderful points. Where do you see things going in the future with regards to lung cancer therapeutics? Of the places where I think we can make a lot of headway is drug combinations. Now, one of the things that we think we're doing a bit better than we were is with our targeted therapies, you know, all the approved therapies are with a single agent. And, you know, one of the principles of oncology is that one needs to typically do combination therapy to be effective. And, you know, that was first proven in the, we call them hematologic malignancies, leukemias and, and lymphomas that you could treat. So I think trying to figure out for those with the targeted therapies, 
what second agent would work and how much you have to individualize it. So, you know, one of the things that does happen is that it may be that it's going to require a different approach depending on what the other genomic changes are in the cancer, because even with a 450 gene panel, the average number of genomic changes you can detect within the tumor are between six and 10. So that's number one. Number two is that with immunotherapy, we're pretty happy. And one of the things we've learned is that you can combine chemotherapy and immunotherapy and make a big difference in that the two together, the combination of chemotherapy plus immunotherapy work better than either alone. One is looking at trying to add a second immunotherapy agent. So far, the success is very modest. And I think it goes to show something that we've learned in oncology many times is that, you know, when you add a third or a fourth agent to a regimen and hope to see a difference in outcome without finding out whether there's a specific subset that's going to benefit more. So I I think in the immunotherapy realm, I think it would be very helpful of finding out in the paper where it either where it doesn't work or it works real well is what's driving it and B, that we likely will need to have different approaches for different people depending on the circumstances. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Johnson. So we're now going to move to our last two questions. We received uh, several variations of these two questions from the public. So I'm going to go ahead and, and transition to our audience Q&A now. So in line with our discussion about disparities in lung cancer screening, significant racial disparities exist in lung cancer treatment. And so this, I know, is, is not necessarily your, your focus, but how do you believe we ensure equity in lung cancer treatment? Well, one of the things we I think is very important is, and probably the most important, is access to care. One of the things that does happen is it's not that expensive to get a CT scan, but for people who end up having to have additional procedures, either additional scans or undergoing procedures, that is not necessarily guaranteed even in the states that expanded Medicaid. So it can be expensive. The second thing is the time it takes to get screened. So you know, disproportionate share of the people whose income is lower will be in hourly jobs. And it's an opportunity cost to take the time off to get screened. And the other part is for folks to understand what it means to meet this and how important it can be to pick up the lung cancer early. As a person who was practicing this for decades before the screen became available, you know, the vast majority of people present with advanced disease, meaning it's spread through the bloodstream, where the vast majority of people who pick this up on a CT scan can have it surgically removed and be cured of it. So it's such an empowering thing to be able to do for folks, and especially the folks who have gone through the process of heeding the message and stopping smoking is to to then take the next step to make sure that you pick it up and get the screening CT scan. So our last question for you, Dr. Johnson, is what is the most important piece of advice you would give to a lung cancer patient who may be listening? Number one is, you know, once you have a diagnosis, you know, the next thing is to get accurately staged, meaning that to find out the dissemination because the vast majority of lung cancers are cured by surgical resection. So you want to get accurately staged. And B is if there's something that a person has that may suggest you shouldn't get a surgical resection. You know, for instance, something lights up on a bone scan. When I say light up, you know, sometimes they'll 
be a signal, you know, from your bones. A lot of people, a lot of times people have injured themselves and things. So you want to be very, very sure that whatever shows up on these staging studies are, are accurate. And then to get your operation at a place that's, that does this uh, commonly, you know, the, the people who go to centers where people commonly do this can be uh, effectively, effectively treated. And then the last thing is to make certain that you get comprehensive biomarker testing. So you can t have access to the targeted therapies and to find out if, if you don't have one of the targets that how well the immunotherapy is likely to work. Thank you again so much, Dr. Johnson, for your time today. It truly has been a pleasure and an honor to talk with you and learn from the wealth of knowledge and experience that you have in this field. We really appreciate all the work and research that you are doing. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the ALSI podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alsi.org. Our next podcast is with Dr. Gerald Winehouse, who is the Medical Director of Respiratory Care Services at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you and have a great day, everyone.